You got into huge trouble at school and your parents are about to find out. Or maybe you maxed out your credit card and now you realize you don't even have enough cash to make your monthly payments. What do you do when you're over your head in trouble? Who do you turn to? Well, today's story in Isaiah 7 speaks to these questions. I know we're supposed to be in Matthew's gospel for the next three weeks, but this morning we're taking a brief detour by way of Isaiah to fill in some of the necessary background to next week's text when Mary, though a virgin, gives birth to a son, and Matthew comments, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So today's story to which Matthew refers is a story about a king named Ahaz who is in a huge jam. Ahaz is the king of Judah. The time is about three, uh, 734 BC. These are the days of the divided kingdom when Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, as you'll see in today's passage, Israel and Judah have split apart into two nations. Israel, Ephraim, is ruled by generally wicked kings in their capital, Samaria. And Judah is ruled by generally more righteous kings from the uh, line of King David in their capital, Jerusalem. And if we can have the first map there. Now, Assyria, which is a vast and powerful empire to the north, is growing in strength and has begun expanding southward, swallowing up all of the small kingdoms within its reach. And Samaria and its neighbor to the north called Aram or Syria, whose capital is in Damascus, have formed an alliance to stand together against Assyria's advances. So we've got Israel, we've got Assyria, or Syria, and they're standing against Assyria. And they figure they need Judah down here at the bottom to join their alliance if they're going to succeed. But for whatever reason, Ahaz, the king of Judah, refuses. So Damascus and Samaria decide that they're going to force him to join their alliance. They begin making plans to conquer him, to remove him from the throne, and to put their own king on who will support the alliance. And we only know that his name is the son of Tabeel. Samaria and Damascus try twice to conquer Judah and to depose King Ahaz. Once they invade him, they, they seize towns, they take captives, they wreak havoc, but they don't succeed in capturing Jerusalem, the capital. Phew, that one was close for Ahaz, too close. But then they get ready to try it again. They amass forces in the north. And then meanwhile, while they're preparing, Edom in the east, realizes that Ahaz is preoccupied with these problems in the north. And so Edom, which has been subject to Judah, if we can have, there we go, uh, they decide that they're going to rebel against Judah, and they do, and they retake a town called Elath. And then the Philistines in the west raid the Negev, and they take border towns along Judah's border. And suddenly Ahaz finds himself in a major jam. He's got hostile forces on three fronts. No wonder that verse 2 of Isaiah 7 tells us, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken in the wind. What will Ahaz do? Who will he turn to for help? 
When we meet Ahaz in the story, he's at the end of the aqueduct by the upper pool. What he's doing is he's inspecting Jerusalem's water supply, trying to figure out how to protect it uh, during the impending siege that he's anticipating. Ahaz isn't contemplating winning this war. He's just trying to figure out how to survive. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like trouble is pressing in on you from every side? Like there's no good news. There's just bad news. Like everywhere you look, there are only new problems. And you don't know where to turn. Well, Ahaz thinks really hard about what his options are. And basically, he he can come up with two. One is to turn to Assyria for help. Now, Ahaz must have been really proud of himself to have thought up this option. It's very clever. I mean, if, if a big bully is picking on two other kids and those kids are harassing you to help them stand up to the bully, what better trick than to get the bully on your side and let him pound the kids who are harassing you? Well, maybe Ahaz realizes that standing up to Assyria is a losing proposition. Better to join the winning team and let Assyria take care of his immediate problems of Samaria and Damascus. Ahaz has a second option, though. And I don't know if he'd seriously considered it himself or not, but the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to remind Ahaz about the second option. Verse 4 spells it out. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. This could also be translated, be careful to keep calm, or be careful to be still and don't be afraid. Basically, God is saying, I'm warning you not to do anything. Keep calm, be still, don't do anything, and don't be afraid. And then God goes on to assure Ahaz that God will thwart the plans of Samaria and Damascus, that they're nothing to be feared because God will make sure that Assyria wipes them out before they can harm Ahaz. Ahaz needs to do only one thing, to trust in the Lord. But, God warns in verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God is promising here to get Ahaz out of this jam. His only condition is that Ahaz trust God instead of trusting Assyria. If Ahaz doesn't trust God, God warns, Ahaz will be destroyed. It's decision time for Ahaz. And this is the most important decision he'll ever make. As we'll see, his response to this situation will set the future course for God's people for the next 700 plus years. Let's help him weigh his options. First, there's Assyria. Assyria is powerful and vicious. Part of their conquering strategy was the element of terror. They were known to impale their enemies on sharp poles and just to leave them there to die to, as a warning to everyone else who might stand against Assyria. Assyria fought ruthlessly and they devised many other cruel forms of torture. So horrid were the stories of Assyria's atrocities that they set the teeth chattering of all the little nations around them. Assyria was a good power to have on your side. You didn't want to be their enemies. 
Second, second option, there was the Lord. Judah was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Long ago, God, the great king, had made a treaty with King David and with his descendants. God had promised to support and to defend and to bless Judah. And in return, the kings of Judah had promised to follow and to trust and to obey God alone as their only Lord. This had worked fairly well in Judah. Many of David's descendants more or less followed God. And when they did, Judah generally prospered. You could compare this to the land of Israel to the north, where the, the kings of Samaria, the, the line of um, king, wicked King Ahab, had been utterly wicked, and that nation is now on the verge of utter disaster as Assyria threatens. But Ahaz down in Judah wasn't like his Davidic fathers in Jerusalem. Ahaz had very little use for the Lord or for the old covenant with the Lord. I mean, Ahaz had only just become king, and look what he had inherited. Maybe the Lord had been helpful in the olden days, but these were the modern times. Things were different now. Ahaz had to be realistic. He had to use his brains. Can you blame Ahaz? I mean, how many of us, when our nation is threatened, write a letter to our president or to Congress and urge them not to rely on our powerful military, but instead to prayerfully trust God that God will deliver us? Why don't we do this? Is it that we really, when it comes down to it, don't trust God any more than Ahaz did for the big things in life? That's a serious question. Have we been so influenced by our national God helps those who help themselves theology? And that proverb isn't in the Bible, by the way. But have we become so influenced by that theology that we've forgotten how to trust God for the big things? Or what about the big jams that we personally face from time to time, which cause us to fear and to worry? The results of a medical test that we just had, the impending decision of management at work about who will be laid off in the next round of layoffs, the choices of those we love which hurt us deeply. Who do we turn to? Who do we trust to help us? in times like these. The big Assyrias of the world or the Lord? Our Assyrias come in all shapes and sizes. Alcohol, shopping, work, TV, loved ones, popularity, money. But Francis Schaeffer very astutely observed a number of years ago that for the majority of Americans are running after all these things add up to two major pursuits. Call them our two major Assyrias, call them two major idols or false gods, call them two major sets of values and priorities. Whatever you want to call them, they're, they're what we as Americans tend to trust and, and to give our primary allegiance to more so than God. And Schaefer said they are personal peace and affluence. Personal peace. If I could just somehow manage to be sheltered and protected from the problems and tragedies of life. And from the hurts and the heartbreaks which, which I see others dealing with. 
if I could insulate myself from trouble and ensure an easy life for myself and my family. Affluence. If we could have nice things, if we could give our kids the, the, uh, a really good education, if we could be able to, to have some fun and have some nice vacations, if we just didn't have to do without, if we, if we didn't have to put off buying what we want now until next year, if our kids didn't have to go to school and have less than all the other kids, if we didn't have to look across the street at our neighbors and have less than what they have, if we could just build a cushion of personal peace and affluence around us, then we'd be much less likely to be affected by big jams like Ahaz and so many others find themselves in. Unfortunately, Schaefer recognized that Christians are often little different from the surrounding culture when it comes to these two priorities. Well, compare personal peace and affluence with the Lord. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. Your Father in heaven takes care of them. How much more will he take care of you? In fact, the Lord continues, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. He adds, in this world, you will, you will have trouble. In fact, if you want to follow me, you must lose your life. You must take up your cross. You must deny yourself. But take heart. I have overcome this world and you will not fail to receive a hundredfold for what you've given for my sake. So which will we turn to when we're threatened by fear, when we're threatened by worry? Will we turn to Assyria or will we turn to the Lord? This decision is front and center in our story this morning. And the Lord does not want Ahaz to get this important decision wrong. Twice he sends Isaiah to him, first in verses 3 to 9, then again in verses 10 to 11. And that's God's grace to persist in encouraging us to trust him, to make the right choice. He reminds us, he pleads with us again and again. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. God pleads with Ahaz in verse 11. Whether in the deepest heights or, or sorry, in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God generously offers to prove himself trustworthy. God will put on a dog and pony show if that's what it takes. Never mind Ahaz's weak faith. God will bend over backwards. God will do backflips to help Ahaz trust. But Ahaz has already made up his mind. Obviously, Assyria is the way to go. Obviously, right? Ahaz piously quotes Deuteronomy, I will not put the Lord to a test. But Ahaz has no intention of trusting the Lord. How about you and me beneath our pious words and our church attendance? In our everyday decisions and our life priorities and choices, are we going with Assyria too? Or is our trust resolutely and firmly in the Lord? Well, for Ahaz, the die is cast. He's made his choice to go with Assyria. He's breaking his covenant with God. He's rejecting the Lord of his fathers. And he's making a treaty with a new Lord. 
a more trustworthy Lord. From now on, he will depend on and serve the king of Assyria. Well, God reacts in verse 13 to Ahab's choice. Ahaz is severely testing God's patience with God's people. And so God will provide a sign, but not the kind of sign that God had originally offered. The sign Isaiah or God will give now, verse 14, will not be one to bolster Ahaz's faith, but rather to prove that despite Ahaz's unfaithful rebellion, that God is with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the sign. And there's both grace and judgment in this sign. To have God with you is a double-edged sword. God's presence means hope and salvation for those who trust God, but it means judgment and destruction for those who reject God. In verses 15 and following, we see the judgment and the destruction prophesied for Judah. By the time this boy, Emmanuel, is old enough to know right from wrong, verses 15 to 17, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and to choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread, Samaria and Damascus, will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Curds and honey were a sign of poverty. They were what you ate when, when the land had been ravaged and the economy had, been, uh, had collapsed and when you were living off the land with a couple of young goats and a young cow and a couple of goats as uh, verse 18 to 25 explains further. It would be like if we were told that next year we would be eating wild raspberries out of the woods and hickory nuts and drinking dandelion tea. <laughs> Just what's available in the wild. The economy's gone, the grocery stores are closed. God is saying, fine, if you want to trust Assyria, go ahead. They'll finish off Damascus and Samaria for you, all right, but you'll be next. Asking Assyria for help is like the fly asking the spider for help. The spider will come and eat the ant and the beetle, but guess who's next for dinner? And this is just what happens. Ahaz rejects his covenant with the Lord, and he makes a covenant with Assyria. He pays Assyria handsomely out of God's temple. If you, read, you can read about this in 2 Kings. He swears loyalty to Assyria and to her gods, which is what you had to do to get Assyria's help. So Assyria comes and they destroy Samaria and Damascus. And then they require Ahaz to be subject, to worship their gods, to pay heavy taxes, so heavy in fact that the economy of Judah begins to crumble. And that's the way it always is with other gods. They promise you so much, but... But all they really ultimately deliver is bondage and destruction. False gods are a bit like flypaper. Haddon Robinson, the, the famous preacher, explains the, the flypaper smells sweet. The fly lands on the flypaper and says, My flypaper. <laughs> but when the flypaper says, My fly, the fly is dead. Or think of the strange man in the dark van who offers the little girl a lollipop. The offer seems so good, but only horror awaits. 
That's what it's like with other gods. And a life which is guided by the gods of personal peace and affluence is the same way. These gods might work for a while, like Assyria seemed to do, but eventually, eventually, we, and if not us, our children or our grandchildren, reap destruction and bondage, ecologically, economically, socially, morally, ultimately, spiritually. Well, for Ahaz and the people of Judah, things will never be the same after this. From this moment on in Judah's history, there are some ups and there are some downs, but overall the trend is all downhill. Every king after Ahaz, if you keep reading the story in, in 2 Kings, experiences war and defeat and subjection or subjugation to Assyria and then to Egypt and then eventually to Babylon when the whole nation is taken into exile. David's house has chosen to obey and to trust the king of Assyria instead of the king of heaven. And so the freedom and the glory and the flourishing of God's people is over. I wish I had time to lay out the whole structure of the book of Isaiah, but basically this moment in Isaiah 7 was the watershed moment. It was the tipping point. And what was the key issue? It was faith. Who was Ahaz going to trust? It's always been about faith, right? From the beginning of God's choosing of Abraham, the man of faith, to the full flowering of the work of God through Jesus Christ, who calls us to faith in him. And that's why the Apostle Paul can reflect on all this in Romans and insist the righteous will live by faith. It's all about which God we're putting our faith in. Assyria or the Lord. For those who choose Assyria, destruction and bondage await. But for those who trust the Lord, there's good news. Remember, the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, is a double-edged sword. While the birth of Emmanuel signaled doom for Ahaz and for Judah, it was also a sign of hope for the remnant who continued to keep their faith in the Lord. In Isaiah's day, this good news and what it fully meant remained shrouded in mystery. Listen to verses 13 and 14 again. Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Notice house of David. It's more than just Ahaz who's being addressed here. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The you here is plural. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So as we focus on the good news and the hope of this sign, first of all, who is this virgin? Scholars like to point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin here, Alma, can also be translated young woman. And Alma is a young unmarried woman, usually a teenager, who in that culture was also understood to be a virgin. Parents carefully guarded their daughter's purities back then because if she wasn't a virgin, she couldn't find, they couldn't find a husband for her. So who is this virgin, this not yet married young woman who is going to have a child? Well, nobody's sure. Obviously, Ahaz and Isaiah expected this virgin to give birth to a son in the next few years. After all, this boy will eat curds and honey when Assyria devastates the land two or three years later. And probably Ahaz and Isaiah assumed that this virgin would have a son not through some miracle, but through getting married and getting pregnant. I mean, forget 
just for a minute about the birth of Jesus, 700 plus years later. If you were Ahaz and you heard that the young unmarried woman would have a child soon, wouldn't you assume that she was about to get married? Well, this leads to the second mystery. Who is this child, Emmanuel, who is born to this virgin, to this young woman? Well, Bible interpreters have many suggestions. Some say it's one of Isaiah's sons. Maybe Maher Shalal Hashbaz from chapter 8, if you keep reading the story. Or, or maybe another son. But the problem is that Isaiah already had a wife and a son. He had Shir Jashub from um, Isaiah 8. So Isaiah's wife wasn't an Alma anymore. Did he take a second wife? Or, as other scholars think, is Emmanuel one of the sons of Ahaz? Maybe Hezekiah? But if you piece together the history, Hezekiah was already born by this point. It couldn't be Hezekiah. Who's this son? Still, others think Emmanuel was the child of a young lady who we can't identify, but that Isaiah and Ahaz would have known who this virgin was. Well, none of these options seem very good. And then add to this mystery, Isaiah 8, where Emmanuel is mentioned twice again. In verse 8 of, Emmanuel, of Isaiah 8, we learn that the land of Judah seems to belong to Emmanuel. And in verse 10, Emmanuel's name brings comfort that ultimately God will restore and protect his people. You'll see that if you read through Isaiah 8. So who is this child? Well, ultimately, we don't know until we get to Matthew 1, and um, Greg Howe will be here next week to make it all clear to us. So I'm done. <laughs> I won't totally leave us hanging, though. <laughs> Let's put the pieces together. Emmanuel, God with us, is a sign. He's a sign for the house of David, and he's a sign for us. He's a road sign pointing to where the choice to trust Assyria, the choice to trust other gods, ultimately leads. And this sign, God with us, is a double-edged sword. God's coming to be with us, something that we're, we're remembering now during the season of Advent and we're looking forward to. This coming means destruction for those who don't put their trust in the Lord. It also means deliverance and life for those who do put their trust in him. Here's the sign. Emmanuel will be born into poverty, born into a time when God's kingdom is in ruins, when the house of David is not free, but is subject to Assyria or to one of the other great empires which followed Assyria, like Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Greece or even Rome. Emmanuel is the right Lord or the rightful Lord of the land of Judah, according to Isaiah 8. And his presence with us reassures us that God's people will ultimately prevail over their enemies because God is with us. Emmanuel will be born of a virgin, whatever that means, and whoever this virgin is. And that's as much as Isaiah tells us. It's up to Matthew to connect the dots. So what message does Isaiah leave us with? Well, it's simply this. When you find yourself in a big jam, look at the sign. Emmanuel, God with us. And then choose carefully in whom you will put your trust.
Let me give you the challenge by way of a very appropriate parable for you to mull over. This story is recounted by Scottish theologian William Barclay. In a little village school in the hill country, a teacher had been telling her children the story about Jesus stilling the storm at sea. Shortly afterwards, a terrible blizzard rolled in and there was a giant snowstorm in the hills. And the school closed for the day and the teacher had to drag these little children bodily through the tempest to bring them safely back to the village, to their homes. And they were in very real danger, as if you've ever been out in a blizzard, you know. And in the midst of all of it, the teacher heard this little boy say as if to himself, we could be doing with that chap Jesus now. Let's remember this Advent that indeed we could. Our closing hymn is familiar to, I think, many of us trust and obey. It's got some beautiful words. We're going to sing verse 1 and verse 4, but verse 4 says, But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who trust and obey let's all stand we're going to sing verses one and four